In every generation, there is a chosen one. She alone will stand against the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. She is the Slayer. So welcome to Worth Watching Guest Choice, where a guest chooses something they love or at least are fascinated by, and we talk about it. I'm your host, a man who would love to live in a world where no one bothered me by presuming to talk to me. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who always floats around with a natty dark suit and a big toothy smile. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And our guest today is Greg Lukianoff. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks for having welcome. me. Yeah. So, Greg, you co-authored one of the most important books of the last few decades, The Coddling oh. of the American Mind, <laughs> uh, the book that was the first to identify huge changes happening on campuses that are now happening to all of society. <laughs> and you're the head of FIRE, the org that defends free speech for students and teachers on campus and is busier now than ever protecting our rights. But this podcast being what it is, and Greg, you being an old-fashioned geek <laughs> today, <laughs> we're not going to talk about any of that important world-changing stuff. Instead, we're going to talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and specifically a couple of the fun episodes, the silent episode and the musical episode. First, uh, a little bit of history, um, and you know, feel free to chime in anytime you want. So, you know, this all started in 1992 with the film Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which Joss Whedon wrote. He did not direct it. Whedon wanted the film to be a scary film with a female protagonist, and the director and Donald Sutherland turned it into a wacky comedy, which he was quite unhappy with. And uh, he got an opportunity a few years later to do it as a TV series. And so that is the Buffy the Vampire Slayer that we are familiar with. So, Greg, what inspired you to choose Buffy for your topic? Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a born comic book nerd. I've been c collecting those since I could, you know, since before I could read, probably. When you asked me about, like, what movie I'd want to do, I, I couldn't, you know, th there's not any movie that I would really go to bat for. But, but the the series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I, I really would, uh, I'm, I'm happy to defend. And it's taken more defending as people, you know, have been writing things about basically Joss Whedon being a terrible mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. I intentionally didn't research that and, and on purpose for this reason. I feel like there's a lot of cultural pressure right now to love fewer things, <laughs> to <laughs> not enjoy art if you can find something that, that the person might be a schmuck or a jerk in some way. And I'm not, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not going to love fewer things. I'm not going to, I'm not going to love less art. I'm not going to go out seeking a reason why I, I don't have to love Firefly or the original Avengers movie or it. Right. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it since talking to you. I just haven't had the time. We've been way too busy. I wouldn't have anyway, because I've got, you know, four and a six year old, but I did get <laughs> to go back and watch the musical, um, with a little bit of the, you know, kind of like, you know, maybe Ron's right. Maybe, maybe I will change my tune on this. Maybe it will seem really clunky and terrible. And I watched it. And I'm like, nope, it's amazing. It's way ahead of its time. It's brilliant. Right. It's subtle. I, I felt like the only thing that some of the things that didn't that might be grading to modern audiences is that like the, like the very fast witty patter might be annoying to to audiences at this point, since it became so standard, but it wasn't, right. Right. you know, that, that was, that by itself was an advanced technique, uh, when Josh started the show. Yeah. And you bring up a topic that we have to deal with all the time, right? Because we're watching 50 plus year old movies 
than TV shows. So there's lots of problems with them. And on the, on the one hand, my approach is absolutely like, we're not going to apply today's standards to those past things, but I have to admit, and Guy can confirm, I'm always the one bringing up the, wow, this is a really white cast, or they only cast this black guy for this one embarrassing reason or whatever. So you can't avoid it, but also I totally agree. I mean, you've got to just enjoy what was there and accept the flaws and move forward. Otherwise, we couldn't watch Shakespeare. We couldn't watch, you know, anything of the past when they had different ideals. Well, and, and sometimes when we, when we focus on, you, you know, I, I think that currently there are people who think that ideas of social justice didn't exist before 2020. And mm-hmm. so people would talk about like Black Panther, for example, you know, and people don't remember that Black Panther came from a super advanced African country and that it was this really kind of like progressive idea even in, in the late 60s when, when the character mm-hmm. came out. Like, it wasn't that they weren't trying to be more open and tolerant. I mean, there, there are some issues of the Avengers that are downright boringly preachy. Like, the, mm-hmm. the, they yeah. would come back to this so often. So I do, I do right. sometimes think Buffy, for example, I think was the first TV show to have a prominent gay couple that also had, you know, strongly implied gay sex in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. So, Guy, what's your familiarity with Buffy? I actually watched the whole series on DVD, but it was probably over a decade ago. Although I watched Hush in preparation for for this podcast, and I I saw the musical episode, and I remember one thing in particular about it. As I remember, it came sort of towards the end, and it was a disturbing revelation about, you know, maybe they weren't doing Buffy any favors by bringing her (laughs) back to... Life. I don't know if we're going to be getting into too many spoilers here. Uh, you know, a decades-old show, it's okay, we can spoil it. <laughs> but uh, yeah. that was enough of a sobering conclusion to that episode that it really stuck with me. Well, the thing that Buffy tried to do is that it was constantly sort of like an allegory for growing up, and they did it really well. So, like, in season two, when she loses her virginity to Angel, that turns him into a, a vampire, like an evil vampire. Mm. And they'd handle it so well because she's talking to, you know, her her shrink that she's being made to see because her parents are getting divorced and being like, so after you had sex for the first time, he changed. And, 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 it's just, and that, <laughs> that was like the most kind of like clear kind of like this is all one big allegory for growing up. But season right. six of Buffy is all about that very dark, potentially, maybe other people, you know, it wasn't so dark for them. But, you know, that dark moment that you can go through, like when you've just graduated from college and you don't know what the rest of your world's going to look like. And it involves a character who's metaphorically uh, addicted to drugs, Willow, Allison Hannigan, Mm -hmm. uh, because she's she's discovering that she's a very powerful witch and apparently can be really intoxicating. Mm -hmm. Uh, Buffy in this season strikes up a relationship with someone who's really bad for her and it's a very destructive relationship. The metaphorical parent, Giles, my favorite character, by the way, has left for the season. And I remember I was watching this not too long before I would have my own mental breakdown that that led to me being hospitalized in Philadelphia, but which is how I got into cognitive behavioral therapy that led to coddling the American mind, everything I've written with Jonathan Haidt. And I realized that one of the things I didn't love about season six at the time was how dark and moody it felt. But, you know, the more I thought about it, from, I'm like, oh, that is actually kind of how it felt. That kind of like that you could genuinely be lost. And would anybody care? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think related to what you're talking about, there's one of the things that was interesting about Harry Potter and interesting about this series is that 
you're seeing kids grow into adults. Now these guys are a little post Harry Potter age, so they get yeah. into a little more <laughs> adult stuff. I had this experience too, for 15, 20 years in Oregon, Ashland, Oregon, they have a Shakespeare festival and it's actually, it, everything about the Ashland Shakespeare festival, the name doesn't make sense. Cause in fact, it's eight months a year. It's not just like over the summer <laughs> and they have three different theaters there and it's a major thing. But one of the things that was interesting, cause it's a repertory theater was going for 15 plus years, you would see actors join while they were green and didn't quite know what they were doing. And you would see them grow into excellent actors of different kinds. Some would be comics, some would be serious, et cetera. And I feel like that's what you get in this show. And you see, you know, just the physical things like Willow starts out and she's shorter than everybody else. And then a couple of years later, she's taller than Buffy. And you know, they never would have cast her as someone who is taller than Buffy, who's the main character, right? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, just life happens as the show goes on. Yeah, they, they all get to kind of grow up together. And that's one of the great progressions of, of the series is watching the, the characters' relationships change to each other. And I, I remember from the decade or so ago that I watched the show, I, I really, uh, I got a kick out of it. And it, it occurred to me back then that a lot of the language use that was on the show was being reflected or maybe reflecting some of the trends on the internet, you know, the way people used language, you know, sort of little clever wordplay and stuff like that. I mean, there's always been wordplay, but there was a certain style of it that Joss Whedon seemed to favor. And I thought maybe the show and the internet were possibly feeding off each other at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely think so. I think the timing of the series was really interesting for the modern world because it started in 1997. Most people were not online yet. I think Guy and I were. <laughs> I mean, we uh, met each other a couple of years later online. Mm -hmm. But you see that at the time there is sort of an internet, but it's a mysterious thing that Willow, <laughs> the sort of expert, can go on. And you can't just go search on Google at the time. And you sort of see that develop, which I thought was really interesting. I guess that would have been Alta Vista back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I watched the silent episode, Hush, mm -hmm. and it was very interesting to me because it really was hitting me. Uh, there, were, there were connections to other things that I was seeing. So the silent episode, you have these guys called the gentlemen, and they are well-dressed in black suits. Uh, they are monsters. They have these bizarre toothy smiles. They float <laughs> instead of walking. And I'm like, what? This is like pinging all these things. And then I realized, well, first of all, it's Dark City. Have you ever yes, seen that movie? Of course, yeah. Which guy we should put on our list sometime. It's well, an amazing movie. Yeah. And that came out in 1998. And this came out, uh, Hush came out in 1999. So uh -huh. I have to suspect that it was partially inspired by that. But also, Doctor Who... Modern Doctor Who has these aliens called the Silence who also wear a suit and who also cause silence. And that was in 2011. So I Ooh. have to think that they kind of morphed this into their show. Mm. So but Buffy was one of those amazing series that when people were starting to count it out, 
it actually got better. So season one, you know, if, if, if there are people who haven't watched uh, Buffy before, you know, season one is, is, is weak, but it was a mid season replacement show for basic cable. It was like on, <laughs> on WPIX, you know, like, you, that's you why there's only like 12 episodes the first season. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so see the first season isn't great. It's a little bit monster of the week, but the second yeah. season is a masterpiece. Like it's, it's absolutely like it, 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 like subtle characterization, like serious topics. Like I said, involves, it, it involves sex and betrayal and, um, <laughs> great characterization. But my favorite season after season two was actually season five, which hmm. is the one in which, uh, which, which included one of the great, the best moments in TV history, as far as I'm concerned, an episode called the body. That's about the death of Buffy's mother. Buffy's mom had been threatened by a million mystical ways. And then finally she dies of a brain aneurysm. There's no foul play in it. And it's about the, and it conveys really well the feeling of how time kind of slows down and everything looks very strange when you're in shock mm. and they convey it so well, it absolutely rips your heart to pieces, but it's done. It, it really was a monumental moment in TV and season five. I loved because it holds together so incredibly well. Meanwhile, hush was definitely one of the weakest seasons of Buffy. They would go off to college. It's like, they couldn't quite figure out how to make that season quite work. It also was a little bit of a letdown for me because I care about how they treat Giles, her mentor, mm -hmm. and he becomes like the embarrassing parent. And in that sense, it was accurate, you know, like to, to the feeling that suddenly you become the embarrassing parent who, who's trying to figure out life with empty nest syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, but in the middle of this lackluster season, you have an episode as absolutely brilliant as Hush. There's, t there's a ton of visual comedy in it. It's extremely well done. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Regarding Hush, Ron had brought up that Doctor Who episode that I haven't seen yet. But this, I did a little bit of reading about Hush, and it turns out they used a trick that another episode of Doctor Who that we saw very recently used. It was the one with the Monoptera, the web planet. You remember uh, Ron had told me that they hired dancers or possibly even mimes to play these insect people in that episode. And from what I read about Hush, that's exactly what they did for this. And that's why the gentlemen have such smooth movements, you know, graceful gestures yeah. and so forth. Well, and one of the things, one of the reasons why Buffy made such an impression on me is I started writing fiction when I was little. I'd draw comic books, even though I have no drawing ability. And then as soon as I could write short stories, I started writing short stories. Mm -hmm. And my short stories tended to be a combination of horror, sci-fi and action. And every time I would show this to writing teachers, you know, um, when I, when I got, I got a scholarship to go to a camp for robot and, uh, robot nerds and writing and acting. And so basically there was people who did writing and acting and robotics and computers, and they really were completely different populations. I was the only one doing robotics and writing. <laughs> <laughs> sort of bridging that, but I was constantly being told it's like, no, you have to pick a genre. And I'm like, I don't want to pick a genre, <laughs> but I did take that to heart. And then one of my favorite shows of all time, it's it, Buffy is a, it's incredibly well-written comedy. It's the action is killer. It's horror and the soap opera really, really works. <laughs> and so like, I, I watched the show being kind of like feeling like, um, I'd been lied to all this time. The first person <laughs> who actually writes you know, write something that actually d does it is this, is this huge hit and he's famous forever for the, uh, after that. And, and rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't really fit conveniently into a single genre with the comedy and the horror and the supernatural and 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's got a lot going on. <laughs> Well, one of the things that goes on also throughout the show is, is the um, they never skimp on the action sequences. Did, did, did you watch The Umbrella Academy? I haven't mm-hmm. seen it, no. I'm not a fan. I didn't think it was very well done. And one thing that they did was they were really trying to focus on the, they're kind of like the X-Men. You know, they're, they're all these mysteriously born people at the same time who all have superpowers. And their Professor X tries to put them together into a group of superheroes. But they really make the action scenes unconvincing meanwhile as buffy got on they got more and more and more elaborate (laughs) and they clearly got like more skilled stunt people so basically so she was upping her game and using killer moves like you've never seen before Mm -hmm. and i got the impression so i've been to couples i I, back in the day i probably watched about a season and a half of it honestly though i was thrown by the first season being monster of the week and i felt like that was the series and Mm-hmm. Now, as you say, watching through the entire season two, it's like, oh, this is really interesting. They have a lot of, in fact, I, I, it might be one of the early series to do arcs, right? Because mm-hmm. that was always an issue for TV series. You weren't allowed to do an arc because they wanted to go into syndication and they wanted it to be that any episode you saw was complete and you didn't have to yeah. know anything else about the series. And it's clear in season two I mean, it was there in season one, but especially in season two, they're like, okay, we're doing this arc and you know, you are going to miss out on things. And in fact, when I then skipped ahead to season four and watched Hush, it's like, okay, I don't know who this character is. I don't know why Spike is here uh, back again when he used to be the bad guy. And now he's hanging around with the good guys. Like clearly the, I can't just watch this episode without going back and watching the previous season (laughs) to see what happened, which I like. It makes it harder to skip ahead to episodes like this. Now, I did not watch the musical episode, but but talk to us about that. So by the time the the musical comes out, Buffy used to be on the Dear Departed WB network, which no longer (laughs) exists. It then moved over to UPN, which I, I don't. I'm not sure still exists even. <laughs> um, so like an even more obscure one. And people kind of thought the series, you know, probably should have ended season five. She, and by the way, she dies at the end of season five. So you kind of mm. assume the whole thing's over. She comes back to life. Uh, sorry. She's resurrected by her friends. Yeah, she died well, at the end of season one too. So this happens a couple briefly. times. Briefly. It's more of a cardiac yeah. arrest thing. <laughs> yeah. And that's how the, the second Slayer is created. So she's brought back to life by Willow and, and, and her friends. And the big secret is that they think since she leapt into a dimension to save her sister, she leaps into a, a field of a hell dimension. They assume that her soul has gone to a, a hell dimension. So she's being infinitely tortured. And it actually turns out that she went to, and I like the fact that they're clear. I don't mean heaven, but I mean, heaven dimension, you know, like we, mm. we're not trying to make this religious, but that essentially they pulled her out of a place where she was for the first time in her life, incredibly happy and at peace. And the way it opens up is because of something horrible happens in that first episode and and they get scared off the way she wakes up, by the way, is buried alive Hmm. and has to claw her way out of the grave. (laughs) And at that point, Sunnydale looks like she's in hell. And that's the big secret. She doesn't want to tell her friends that they actually did something really horrible to her by bringing Mm -hmm. her back. And, and one of the great things, there's so many great things about the musical. Again, mid-season on a obscure network, and it looks like they put 
millions of dollars into it. Like really like the, the choreography, like, you know, not everyone there's a professional dancer, but they get like, um, Xander does like a dance routine, you know, in it, like who clearly can't dance. <laughs> Emma Caulfield, who can sing, it seems like she might actually be a triple threat and who is my second favorite character, a former demon called Anya, a, a former vengeance de a demon. She's a great character and they do, uh, and I, I'm a big fan of musicals. So like it did the whole opening exactly like, like a, a, like a musical from like the 1940s. Every single night, the same arrangement, I go out and fight the fight. Still I always feel the strangest estrangement Nothing here is real, nothing here is right I've been making shows of trading blows Just hoping no one knows That I've been going through the motions Walking through the part Nothing seems to penetrate my heart They do a retro pastiche, to, to quote Anya directly, of whether or not you should really be marrying a demon. Like David Brinkley. Am I crazy? Am I dreaming? Am I marrying a demon? We, we could really, really raise, raise the beam and making marriage a hell. So thank God I'll never tell. I swear that I'll never tell. But it also includes lines like, so Spike is very much based on Johnny Rotten mm -hmm. and Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols. I mean, he's, he's a British vampire who actually, before he was a vampire, was just a very sweet poet. And that's one of the reasons why he's not quite as evil as other vampires when he changes, because you keep some aspects of your personality, even as you lose your soul. But he does a whole sort of rock and roll number. Let me rest in peace. Let me get some sleep. Let me take my love and bury it in hole six foot deep. That includes the line that if my heart could beat, it would break my chest. Um, and it's just filled with great lines like that. And she came from the grave, much graver is a line from that. I was like, I had to look that up, um, because it's a reference to her coming back. One of the things that they do in this episode is it, it is actually the turning point for to a degree, actually even the series, but for the whole season is built around revelations that come out of the musical that are skillfully worked into song so yeah i could i could go on for it forever <laughs> well then talking about spike being nicer than you would expect a vampire to be one of the things i thought was interesting about the second season is her boyfriend angel who used to be a bad guy and did and we're told did really really bad things he would not only torture people but he would killed their whole family in creative ways before he killed them, you know, that sort of thing. But now we know him as a good guy. And in most series, like once someone's a good guy, they're just the good guy. But then in season two, he changes. Well, after he has sex with Buffy, he has a moment of peace, which breaks the curse that was making him a good guy. And he becomes a bad yeah. guy again. And one thing I thought was interesting, and it wasn't just for one episode, it was for almost the entire season. Yeah. He's a bad guy. He kills on screen a lot of people. Oh, yeah. He rips the hearts out of people. I mean, it's really bad. And it's like you don't see that in a typical TV series. And again, it would be normally resolved in one episode and he'd be back yeah. as his normal good guy again. And yeah. And then she sends him to hell at the end of the episode. Yeah. Of the, the that, that, I mean, season two is a masterpiece. So Giles, again, my favorite character, <laughs> he ha has this uh, girlfriend, like a very cute relationship. Mm, with the mm, librarian mm. named Jenny, who also was the first time I heard anybody make a reference to Burning Man 
mm-hmm. on, on TV, mm-hmm. which was something mm-hmm. I'd been going to for a couple of years by that point. And he, he sets her up and snaps her neck, you know, uh, th- sorry, Angel does this after he turns right. evil. And that episode though, I, and then he leaves a, what looks like a setup for Giles of like sp- yeah. sprinkled, yeah. you know, rose petals Roses to make it seem candles, like, it, yeah. yeah, it's going to be this romantic encounter just to really mess with Giles at like, oh, look, I killed your girlfriend. But I also like the fact that at this point, you know, Giles as her trainer and her father figure. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I love him so much, but you get to see him also be badass. Like he very nearly kills yeah. Angel all by himself based on smarts and anger. But mm-hmm. then, then, but one of my favorite changes in direction for Buffy happened also in season two that I think initially Joss Whedon and writing her had, had a little bit more of a idea that she was a little bit irresponsible as a slayer. She was a little bit sort of like selfish, right. you know, not hardworking enough. And so they brought on this other slayer who, who came to Kendra, into existence when Br- Br- Buffy briefly dies. And they're trying to set up this sort of like tension where like Kendra's like a really serious, you know, slayer and she's really disciplined and all this kind of stuff. And that Sarah Michelle Geller was supposed to play like the sort of like happy-go-lucky slayer that, that wasn't disciplined enough. And I think they realized that didn't really fit Sarah M- Michelle Geller's personality, that, that, that essentially they would change that valence by having someone who w- w- was actually much more fun, much more reckless, much more irresponsible than Buffy in the next season. And that, and that actually was better and have Buffy be the more uptight one. And it was actually, it wasn't just better, truer to the actual actors, but it was also much better for comedy and drama. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the characters. So you mentioned Giles is your favorite character. And I feel like, uh, Anthony... Anthony Stewart had, yes. I feel like it was really good to involve him because you have these young actors. Yeah. And you have this experienced guy who can bring the kind of like Patrick Stewart <laughs> gravitas to the show. And without that, I think the show would have been a more trivial feeling thing, you know. And also, and I was reading up on this like in Wikipedia, the guy who played Spike, who I assumed was British, nope. is not British. Yep. And he was being taught by that guy <laughs> yes, how but... to do British dialect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's a great moment. Um, and, and they actually became kind of close. The two actors, a- a- Anthony Head and, and James Marsters. There's a great moment when they all lose their memory, which is actually the episode after the musical, where since they're the two British characters, Giles and Spike, Spike thinks he's Giles' son, <laughs> which is like a very funny relationship for the two of them to have. But then since he's wearing like secondhand clothes, the name of the person who used to wear them is inscribed on that. And he discovers that his name is Randy and he can't get, forgive his father <laughs> for giving him the name the name Randy, like they, they did good character comedy and they also did a lot of, of, of great, uh, wordplay, uh, pretty consistently. Mm-hmm. I had f- forgotten how much I got a kick out of, uh, Anya or Anyanka, I think was, oh, her, was her full name. And yeah, it was funny watching Hush because I remembered just about everybody. Well, Olivia Giles's friend who came in for the episode, I didn't recall her, but there's also mm-hmm. that Riley, who has a fairly big role, at least in that season, I think. And I had completely forgotten about him. I remembered. Everybody forgets about <laughs> Riley. It's, it, it's the, it's the weakest season. I mean, maybe the final season might, might actually be the weakest or maybe the first, those are the, those are the bottom three, but it, you know, it still has moments. 
Anya's progression is great because Anya gets an initially, she's one of the monsters of the week. She's a vengeance demon who then gets stuck in the form she's taken, which is a teenage girl. And they handle that. And she's like a great comic actress because she was able to sell the idea that she's really mad about being stuck as a mortal, an immortal teenager nonetheless. But she has all these feelings <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the idea that kind of like being embodied as a, as a teenager actually makes her a teenager. So she really wants to go on a date with Xander. You, you, you know, she, really, she wants a date to the dance and she's embarrassed of the fact she wants a date to the dance. One of the things that's great about Anya is that she's very direct. She doesn't have any social sense about what's appropriate to say. And so she's constantly saying inappropriate things. And one of the things that, that I saw when I watched the musical, when I was, I think maybe in England or something like that, it just happened to be on. So I wanted to watch the musical and there's a season where for some reason, it's not the funniest gag, but Anya is terrified of bunnies. Like she's, <laughs> she, she thinks rabbits are terrifyingly awful looking creatures, which is, you know, probably leftover from her demon days and at the end of it when she's like think she, her theory is that it must be bunnies that are actually bringing the evil to sunnydale and then she when everyone's looking at her funny she's like or possibly midgets and and i'm like oh my god like, like the like that and, and they took it out uh, of the one that they showed in england but on the uh, mm. but watching it on prime uh it, it it's uh, it's still there uh, and remembering that you know there there were jokes that you know you, you could say on, on on buffy even 15 years ago or ones that could possibly i uh, mean you lose your tenured professor job these no, days yeah. <laughs> Talk about other geek stuff. So you're a comic guy. Yep. My history with comics, I'm a huge, I was originally into Frank Miller and then I went to Alan Moore and Watchmen and all that. But, and you know, I've read lots of the early Spider-Man and stuff, but I feel like you have more of a overall comic experience. I mean, what, <laughs> what, what are your favorites? So I, I'm the youngest of four and anytime I could find all, uh, we all worked from an early age. So that meant anytime I could find two quarters and a dime because I was 60 cents when I was little, two quarters and a dime running right down to the corner store, buy myself a comic book. Mm -hmm. And the only time in my life where I, I wasn't reading comic books was maybe like a four year period that overlaps <laughs> a little bit with law school. And then mm -hmm. I, and, and actually that no, was probably a little bit longer. I think it was probably about 94 to maybe like 2002. And the good news is I was missing some of the worst years of Marvel <laughs> comic book done. <laughs> it seemed to kind of follow, you know, like that I was there for this big explosion in quality in the 1980s. I mean, yeah. the idea that, that, that I, I could, you know, within a couple of years of each other, Frank Miller was writing daredevil that uh you know then anna senti you know you, you know um was writing it with totally different uh but a really humanizing really interesting uh, quirky approach simonson was doing his thor which mm -hmm. was a comic book that had been languishing forever that john byrne was doing his absolutely masterful fantastic four at, at the same time i, I am actually a, a big fan of john burns and of course chris claremont and john Romita mm -hmm. uh, jr were, were, were doing a lot of uh, of x-men it was it was a really great time to be in into comic books and then it got really not so great in the in the mid 90s and i and i, I was able to miss miss a lot of that but but since then particularly when you started like the civil war crossover mm -hmm. thing which is when all the all, all the superheroes are pitted against each other for a problem that actually felt like a genuine moral dilemma that essentially the government is trying to, after a lesser known team of superheroes called the new warriors, um, try to take on some villains in Stanford, Connecticut, it goes badly. They, they don't realize they're battling this guy called nitro. 
he, and he blows up Stamford, Connecticut because they didn't handle it right. And they were actually recording a, a reality show. <laughs> so the whole country freaks out. They're kind of like, whoa, the, like 800 people died because, because of this. And Tony Stark says, I always saw this coming. So eventually the government's going to say no can do. You have to be trained. You have to work for the government. You have to reveal your secret, secret identity, or we will arrest you. No more vigilantes. This isn't working out anymore. Captain America doesn't want to work for the government. Like, um, even though he's worked with shield voluntarily, he doesn't want to actually be like their soldier. Mm -hmm. So it, it turns into this, like, kind of like sensible sort of like, um, battle of like what's going to happen between iron, iron man and captain America with both of them having valid moral arguments that they make really well. This is Brian Michael Bendis mm -hmm. writing at the time was, was a really great writer. Mm -hmm. So I've been super impressed with the way Marvel found its footing again. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, the, the movies, all, all but a few of them, I, I think are Sony. I don't bother with, with the Sony versions of them, but you know, I, I feel like everyone's living in my universe now and I just get to go, you know, watch my, uh, <laughs> watch as other people learn who Moon Knight is. I was reading it when it was Moon Knight and what was the, the disco girl? Uh, <laughs> Dazzler. Dazzler, Moon Knight and Dazzler. Yeah, I was reading it back then. But you know, when... Frank Miller and then Alan Moore came along and they did these really gritty things. And especially Moore is said, and then everybody started to do that. Right. So yeah. Moore was doing the, the gritty take on superheroes. And later Moore was like, well, I didn't mean that everyone should do this. And he actually reverted to doing kind of silly superhero comics because he wanted to make the point that, you know, that's, they didn't all have to be dark and gritty. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was something that was funny hearing people, you know, because everyone thinks they're a comic book expert now, so thanks to the MCU. And I saw someone talking about how Marvel, you know, DC only does dark and gritty, and then someone saying that Marvel could learn a little bit from that. And I'm like, <laughs> Marvel, like, introduced that, um, right, you know, like right. a, a progression of first they made the characters a little more real, um, and, and then they, yeah. you know, it got a little grittier. And the grittiest, you know, the, the original gritty comic was, you know, Frank Miller's Daredevil, but there was other difficult stuff going on there. I actually think the, 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 the show that, that added even more dimensionality to this after creating genuine sort of moral dilemmas, uh, which I think fiction in general has gotten better at doing. Have you watched Peacemaker? Uh, I watched like an episode or two, but. I loved it, uh, and partially because it was this thing like, okay, so we've accepted Frank Miller, you know, particularly with Dark Knight did a great job of like, if these people existed, they'd be psychopaths and sociopaths. <laughs> and that makes sense. And they'd be really damaged. But I thought Peacemaker did a good job of like, they might be all of these things. They'd almost certainly be all of these things. They might also be idiots <laughs> and have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> My comic book tastes, uh, I only read them when I was real young and they were more the, uh, Dennis the Menace and Archie and that sort of thing. <laughs> Although nice. even those have gone different now. Like the Archie comics, you know, they did like a Buffy style. Riverdale. Uh, they did. Riverdale. Yeah. yeah. I watched yeah. about four seasons of that. I, uh, I got a, I got a huge kick out of it actually, but it, it was sort of a guilty pleasure. I guess you'd say it's just sort of like a over the top soap opera type thing, but, yeah. but, uh, but it's fun <laughs> and, uh, uh, beautiful show to look at. I mean, the cinematography is really nice in it. Marvel Unlimited, which is the app that lets you read mm. practically every uh, Marvel comic ever written was the most exciting thing I could have imagined as a kid. Actually, this 
to go back to Buffy, there's a Buffy spinoff um, called Angel that's about mm. her her boyfriend, and it's not great except for season five, <laughs> which is when they take over an evil law firm. Um, and it's the whole question is, can you use evil to bring greater good in the world? And the answer is essentially ambivalent, but it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant season. But in that, there's a book, rather than having Giles's whole library, there's a single book that you whisper into it what, what codex you want to read, and then you can you can open it up. And I feel like that's what I have with Marvel Unlimited. And I went from just reading things, you know, kind of all over the place, whatever I felt that night, to being like, you know what? I've always been critical of the Hulk, and therefore I feel a moral obligation to read every single issue of the Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all, all the way up through the final issue of the Incredible Hulk. And I did it, and I, I developed a much greater appreciation for the Hulk. Uh, oh. It was partially because when I was a kid, the Hulk was pretty lousy. Like, it, the, the comic books were pretty lame. The art wasn't great. I was like, who? why do people like this? And I was able to figure out that it was really just a period that, that I was reading, when I first started reading it, was a, just a, not a very good period for the Hulk. Then I went and read every single issue of the Fantastic Four, which is amazing because that is the story of the marvel universe you, you get yeah. to see it created bit by bit i've finally developed a full appreciation for just what a genius jack kirby was for example and right now i'm doing all of the avengers and what i got to what i'm in the middle of right uh, right now is the, what's called uh the kree scroll war the scroll or the shape-changing mm -hmm. aliens who are evil versus the kree which is where their version of captain marvel comes from I'm really glad I'm doing these sequentially because uh, I remember, you know, collecting comic books in the 80s. They'd be referring back to this, uh, the Kree-Skrull War a, a lot. And I was like, okay. And I, and I read it at some point and I thought it was pretty cool. But seeing it in context, having read every single Avengers that preceded it, you're like, oh, this is like a gigantic leap in sophistication. And the person who, I, uh, who brought the, uh, the art up to a whole new level right in the middle of it, was Neil Adams. So when mm. the, when the announcement came that Neil Adams died just a couple, you know, just a couple days ago, I was, I was literally reading his absolutely brilliant work on the Avengers and his art really was just on a different level than anything around at the time. Yeah. I gotta say story-wise too, you know, between Stan Lee and his collaborators and, you know, who did what is, will always be a, a big question, but you know, we talk about Frank Miller and Alan Moore as we did bringing gritty to it, but really it was Stan Lee and those folks with the very first ones, especially Spider-Man, you know, the kid with financial trouble, et cetera. And as you say, Fantastic Four, where a family fighting all the time. I mean, my impression before that is that comics were all these sort of happy characters. You didn't have conflict. And Stan Lee and company brought conflict into the comics. And then, you know, decades later, Miller and Moore just took that to another yep. level. And that was what was kind of missing from DC back then. And I think that that's what Snyder was trying to bring to DC films. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, there's a whole long discussion there about whether he was successful or not, or, or how successful. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I think he was trying to bring that essentially Marvel sensibility to the Disney, or not Disney, DC <laughs> content. I guess it is all probably Disney now, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but that's also, and I guess we can maybe wrap up with this. It's, there's a really interesting arc for Joss Whedon, right? His career yeah. right now, at least, is kind of at an end. Maybe he'll be able to, to start it up again. But 
for whatever the issues were with him as a collaborator and as a good or a bad person, he did brilliant work. I mean, I'm even, you know, I'm interested now in completing the Buffy stuff and I will probably binge the rest of it, but I'm really a Firefly guy. That's where I really got Oh, Firefly's such genius. Read. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can, you it, that's just one of those where there were only like 12 or 13 episodes in the movie and, and you're just like, wow, if they'd had more time and what could they have done and, and, and everything. And, it, and I think it's just an incredible show. And then Whedon, you know, I mean, he went from being a TV writer and director to doing Firefly, which was also TV, but was getting closer. Then he did Avengers. And I don't, people now probably can't remember, especially if you're young and you've been, you've grown up with the MCU, you don't understand the idea of having a single movie with a half a dozen movie stars in it that brought together all these different storylines. Like nobody had ever done that in a movie. I thought it would be a disaster. Mm -hmm. And he made it work. Yeah. Now, his later work, you know, his second Avengers film, his remake of Snyder's, you know, Justice League, whatever. I mean, I think he kind of went off the tracks. But mm -hmm. going from Buffy through Avengers, that's an amazing career, an amazing impact that he had. And I think if Joss Whedon had not done Avengers, we might not have the rest of the MCU, because that was the test case. Can we make a movie work with all these different stars? Now they do it without a second thought, right? Yeah. They know how to do it, but that movie set the template. Well, the thing I didn't fully appreciate, and of course I, I really should have, is that they were going for one of the real innovations. The, the innovations of, of Marvel Comics with Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, and, and Jack Kirby was, first of all, making people more relatable, make them, making them more flawed like uh, like regular people are. But also the biggest thing was continuity about this is a coherent universe. The cases overlap. There will be scenes that um, if, if New York City mm -hmm. gets taken over by aliens, <laughs> that's what happened this month. And people will mm -hmm. be talking about it. I, I thought that and they did that very skillfully in the Netflix series with Daredevil that, that yeah. all of I this love is the still first like Daredevil series. Yeah. Oh, so good. It's, it's still like the, what's left over of what they now call, all call the battle of New York and all of these things. And it, you know, it's been a huge pain to keep track of it. And by the way, that was one of the things that hurt Avengers too. uh, age of Ultron was apparently Joss found it too difficult in some ways to sort of, uh, work in all the threads that they were requiring him to work through. Right. And that's right. the main problem, frankly, with, with age of Ultron is it's trying to do too many things yeah. in too short of a time. Yeah. You know, that's the same thing that happened with Sam Raimi on Spider-Man three. They were like, oh, for these purposes, you must put these three evil characters in here. And he had to write a script that included all these things. And he just lost the thread on what he, he was doing. He also had a bad you know? musical number, though. Yeah, you know, like yeah. there's so many things to hate. There's so many things yeah. to hate about Spider-Man 3. It just, it just completely breaks my heart. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to watching multi, uh, Doctor Strange. M Multiverse of the Madness? Yeah. And I'm seeing sort of mixed reviews, so we'll see. I'm one of the guys who I really like the first Doctor Strange, but I have to admit, so like some of the other films, Black Panther, you mm -hmm. know, I, it didn't really hit me. It did, it's not part of my life experience. There was a lot of bad special effects and fights in it and I, you know, mm -hmm. et cetera. But I watched the first Doctor Strange, which wasn't the most successful by far Marvel film. It was one of the less successful films. 
And I see a middle-aged white guy going through middle-aged trauma, trying to figure out his life and then, you know, becoming more spiritual and more. And I'm like, that's me. <laughs> They're talking about me. And I love that film. So I'm really hoping that Raimi has done something interesting with it. And also I've really gotten into Raimi in the last year or two and been watching his films and Bruce Campbell and that whole thing and the Coen brothers. I mean, there's a whole other thread there that's really amazing well, if you start e evil dead too um <laughs> you know like that was something that that uh just changed everything because uh, I, I remember yeah. watching evil dead one uh one of my friends got like a vhs of it we weren't supposed to watch it because we were you know, 12 <laughs> or 13 or whatever and there's some horrible scenes in it but then by the time you get to evil dead 2 and I, I i really was absolutely the audience for changing the movie halfway through to be a comedy you know um and suddenly <laughs> You have this horror movie, and the next thing you know, he's cutting off his own hands, laughing, you know, saying, like, who's laughing now? Because his hands hands have been taken over. <laughs> and then it just goes full comedy, and you're like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then Army of Darkness only <laughs> takes it from there. <laughs> yeah. So we've covered lots of stuff. Thanks so much, Greg. For yeah, people for who want to follow you online, you know, where should they check you out? I am G Lukianoff uh, at twitter.com. My blog is called The Eternally Radical Idea or just Eternally Radical I Idea. The easiest way to find me is my last name is Lukianoff, L-U-K-I-A-N-O-F-F. -F, and if you put that in, I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah, I guess there's not too many of those, right? And I highly yeah. recommend people read your book. And I think you've been working on a series of articles and such updating that, right? Yeah. My, my co-author, Jonathan Height and I, we wrote an afterword uh, to try to update our book for, with everything that's happened since 2018 mm -hmm. related to the trends we talk about. We, and we talk about a lot in Coddling the American Mind. I originally thought I could do an update for Coddling the American Mind that would essentially be an article. And then I, I flipped out and started doing this series called Catching Up with Coddling. And I got to like episode 18 before Height <laughs> stopped, stopped me and like, let's try to turn this into an afterword. And he wanted to boil it down. Mm -hmm. So we, we tried to... Right, and afterward, it was 50 pages before we knew it that would have actually made the book itself more expensive. Mm. So we've been doing it in chunks, both on the FIRE website and also at a site called Persuasion. And we have one more piece to do. We're, we're almost done with it, and we're still having a hard time finding, finding the time to, to complete mm. it. Well, I will close by saying again, I think one of the most relevant and important books of the last few decades. So everyone should read that. Wow. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ron. Spike. Look, you don't have to say anything. I touch the fire and it freezes me. I die. I look into so it many and years it's ago. This isn't real, you can make me but I just want to I have some stuff for us to talk about, but, but just wherever it goes is where it goes. I think the series as a whole, as well as this episode and, you know, just again, it's a conversation. So normally Great. what we do, we usually do like a movie or a show where we do, where Guy and I separately do a walkthrough of it. Um, I don't anticipate doing that in this case. I think we're just going to talk about Buffy and about this episode and not do kind of a, a detailed walkthrough. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I, I, the only one I got a chance to rewatch, and even that was difficult, was the musical, which is the one that uh, we talked about at the dinner. Hmm. Oh, I watched. I thought it was the silent one. Okay, I did not watch the musical. Well, okay, <laughs> that'll be interesting. <laughs> <You didn't> watch- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. 